Good morning. Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to the fourth chapter of John as we continue in our journey through this book as a church and as we continue in our journey through this encounter that Jesus is having with the woman of Samaria. As we've been walking through this chapter over the last few weeks, we've probably noticed by now that Jesus is steering this conversation and this encounter in a more and more intense direction as it goes along. He's been up to a few things, a few different layers of Jesus's work here. He's been revealing himself to this woman. He's been revealing herself to herself, and he's been escalating this conversation. And today, we're going to look at verses 19 through 26, those verses that Tim just read to us. And in these verses, Jesus builds this conversation to a crescendo. This is a, one of the crescendos in chapter 4 today. And in this crescendo, Jesus magnifies his total, absolute, utter supremacy and sufficiency in contrast. And he contrasts that utter, absolute, total supremacy and sufficiency in contrast to her insufficiency and her need. We've discussed this in previous weeks, that Jesus clearly came to Samaria and to this woman with an agenda. This wasn't an accidental trip. Uh, it wasn't incidental that Jesus happened to run into this woman in this town, at this place, at this time, with this background. This was all very intentional on Jesus's part, and he had an agenda with her as he moved this conversation along. And fundamentally, his agenda was to show her that all she needs, all she needs is found in the one standing right in front of her. So to show her that, he keeps escalating the conversation more intensely. From asking for water in verse 7 to implying that he's greater than Jacob and that he himself is a well of living water in verse 14 to exposing her deepest desperation, deepest needs, and sin in verse 18. He's leading this woman to an honest admission of her deepest need, which is nothing more and nothing less than God himself. He's not initiating this conversation to point out her insufficiency, to just leave her feeling insufficient. He's not wrecking her in order to leave her feeling wrecked. There's an agenda here is to let her see her insufficiency and her need in order to see his sufficiency. She needs God. Fundamentally, she needs God. She needs to know how she can get to God. So we arrive here at a great crescendo in this text, and I'd like to highlight three notes in this crescendo that we hear in our text. This exposes for us 
something. The heart of not only what is this woman's deepest need, but also the heart of what is our deepest need. How can we get to God? How do we get to him? And the question she asks here, the issue she raises just after she's had her whole life turned upside down, the first note in the crescendo that she highlights is this. Jesus is our access. Jesus, our access. We've just heard her say in verse 19, Sir, uh, I perceive you are a prophet. And then we rudely interrupted her for a week. And now we pick back up with the rest of that thought in verse 20, as she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, probably pointing as she says this, this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Some commentators think that she's changing the subject here. Uh, Jesus has just exposed something quite private in her life and that it's uncomfortable for her. And she's like, you know what, Jesus, what do you think about infant baptism <laughs> or something? <laughs> it's, I don't think that she's changing the subject to get it away from her. I, I would lean where a lot of other commentators lean, which is that she's looking at Jesus. She's been captivated by this man. The, like last week, she knows she's known, loved, forgiven, and so she's not obsessing over herself. She's, she's leaning into him. And so she asks a question now that gets at the heart of what's keeping her, but not only what's keeping her, what's keeping her people from really getting to God. It's a question that has to do with access. How exactly do I get to God? It's a question about access here, about the mountain or Jerusalem. A little bit of context might be helpful for us here. Not all of us are experts in the differences between Samaritan and Jewish theology. So I'll give a little bit of context here, which I hope won't totally put you to sleep. But she, she raised this question because Samaritans believed that Deuteronomy 12.5 said that God had chosen to be worshipped or accessed, use that word, on Mount Gerizim. That was how they read Deuteronomy 12.5. God had chosen. And it was over there, that mountain, Mount Gerizim. Jews, on the other hand, believe that same verse, Deuteronomy 12.5, said where God will choose to be worshipped. That God will choose. And that in further revelation from God, he said it was in Jerusalem. This difference now between their theology, between Samaritan's view, God has chosen, or the Jewish view, God will choose, all hung on the absence or the presence of the smallest character in the Hebrew alphabet called a yod. So it all hung on, a yod. Now, if if you're a linguistic nerd, or even just a slight linguistic nerd like me, you'll know how little things can make a big difference in language. I was thinking this morning, this came to my mind, I forgot about this, about the time my dad told this woman at our church, an elderly woman, that he was going to be speaking at like a week-long camp in Florida that was called uh, Camp Farthest Out. 
And he, was, he invited her to come to this, and he noticed that she was really offended. Uh, and I think it went on for a few weeks. She was really hurt. He invited her to camp farthest out. And it came out in a few weeks that, why are you upset? I'm so upset with you. Uh, she thought that he had invited her to camp for the stout. <laughs> Little things <laughs> can make a big difference in language. You may have strong opinions on things like commas uh, in language. I am a fan of commas and dashes and parentheses and all those things. I love them. I love commas. I think they make a big difference between saying something like this, let's eat grandma versus let's eat grandma. <laughs> Little things make a big difference. So there's this great debate hinging on something as insignificant as one little letter. And the tragic result of it though, tragic result is that this woman and her people have completely missed the point. Not to mention they've completely missed God's full revelation. They rejected God's revelation after Deuteronomy. So notice with me now how Jesus, instead of focusing on the God, instead of picking a side, writes a whole new sentence. He inaugurates a new day. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. And I love that. Again, he's speaking tenderly to her, speaking my lady, not woman. My lady, believe me. First time so far in this conversation, he's been this direct with her. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father He's escalating things, magnifies his sufficiency here in contrast to her and her whole system's insufficiency. Saying, no more Mount Gerizim versus Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. You don't need a mountain. You don't need a temple. You don't need any physical location anymore. All you need is standing right in front of you in the person of Jesus. So he's building it to a crescendo here. He's obliterating an argument over the absence or presence of a God. And in verse 22, he says that salvation, see this word towards the end of verse 22, salvation. In other words, the Savior, he, he, the Savior, salvation has come from the Jews. He's not saying just to the Jews or for the Jews. But from the Jews, he's the greater mountain, the greater and perfect mountain, the greater temple, perfect temple. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. A little dig there saying, your people have rejected God's full revelation in his word. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jewish people, worship what we know, meaning they've received God's full revelation for salvation. In other words, Jesus is from the Jews. The summary here, the habitation of God, where you access God, is no longer something you go to. The habitation of God is someone who comes to you. How do you get to God? 
First note of the crescendo here, Jesus, our access. Whatever you put between you and Jesus, Jesus wants to obliterate it. It may be that you're obsessed with something or some doctrine or some ecclesiological squabble that hinges on something as minute as one letter. Or it may be that you're missing some full revelation in God's word, like the Samaritans. It may be that you're adding on extras and supplements and additional burdens, and you think these things or these arguments or these supplements will help you get to God, but they don't. They get in the way. And Jesus will obliterate anything that gets in the way. He and he only is our access to God. So now we hear another note in this crescendo of Jesus, our acceptance. Jesus, our acceptance. He is the mountain. He is the temple. He is the point of access to God. And he comes in flesh. We've seen this now. To broken places and to broken people, not to wait for them to muster up acceptable worship, but to make them into acceptable worshipers. Jesus hasn't just been proclaiming grace and the gospel to this woman, to now, in reply to her question about access to God, lay on works, what she has to muster up. He's come to find her, to save her, and to make her into a a new person. So he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. There's that now and not yet that we live in. It's now and it's coming. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And he, the one who's saying this, is the proof of that. That the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's what Jesus is doing in Samaria. He's seeking someone. And because the Father seeks such people, true worshipers, he sends Jesus into the world to make sinners into such people. God in Christ makes sinners like you and me into true worshipers, not through our works, but through rebirth. Remember what he said in one chapter earlier, Nicodemus, in chapter 3, verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's the standard for acceptance into the kingdom. Rebirth through faith and belief in Christ. You have to be born again of water and the Spirit. So what Jesus is doing here in answering her deepest longing and her need for how to get to God is he's restating the same standard here to the woman of Samaria, the same standard that he did to Nicodemus. Verse 24, he restates it. God is spirit. Those who worship him, those who come to him, must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is not creating a different standard for worship access to God that is different from his standard for entering the kingdom of God. Same standard. God is righteous. Those who come to him 
must be righteous. So in Christ, what does he do? Makes us righteous. God is spirit and truth. So what does God do for us in Christ? He rebirths us in spirit and truth. This standard for acceptance that Jesus lays out constantly in the Gospel of John is a standard that just like the woman of Samaria, none of us can ever meet. And since God the Father knows that we cannot meet this standard, he sends his son, just like he did in Samaria, not to wait for us to make ourselves acceptable, not to wait for us to turn ourselves into true worshipers, but to give that to us as a gift. He says, you want to access God? Your access is standing right in front of you. You want to offer worship that is acceptable to God? Your acceptance is standing right in front of you. To worship in spirit and in truth is to worship as a reborn person. Verses 23 and 24 describe the worshiper who is in Christ. Just hear this. In Christ, you are in the spirit. In Christ, you are in the truth. He says that about himself in John 14. I am the way and the truth. So therefore, you worship in spirit and in truth. Always in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're always in Christ. So you're always offering worship in Christ. It's Christ-enabled, Christ-covered, Christ-saturated, Christ-mediated worship. You never offer worship to the Father that isn't mediated by Christ. This is good news. <laughs> Praise God. True worship doesn't result from something you muster up. You don't muster something up for Jesus. I've used this verse out of context like that before as a worship leader. We're going to really worship in spirit and in truth this morning. You may have heard it used like that, sort of out of context. Like, okay, I need to muster this up. I'm going to really worship. I'm going to really worship in spirit and truth. No, it's not something you muster up for Jesus. It results from something that is done in you and to you in Jesus. Notice how this is worded. I want to hammer this for one more minute here. Verse 23, true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, not should, not ought to, not better try to. Will worship in spirit and truth. In verse 24, they must worship in spirit and truth. See how definitive Jesus is, is speaking here. Because this is the way we must get to God, then God in Christ makes sure this is the way we will get to God. There's a standard we cannot meet. Jesus meets it and enables it in us. When I came to work here many years ago, I was given a key to my office. I didn't drive down to Old Home Depot or to Lowe's 
and go up to the key-making machine or the key-making man and just say, hey, can I have the machine for a minute? I want to muster up a key. I think it's going to look something like this to get me into my office. I didn't have to muster up a key. Although I was the music director, I did think a lot about keys. But, <laughs> sorry. I didn't, I didn't have to make my own key. Thank you. I was given a key. I needed to be given an acceptable key to gain access. Jesus is our key. You're in Christ. You are in the key. And the key you're in is the key of spirit and truth. That's who Jesus, it's what Jesus enables in you. Now, here's the third note in this crescendo now. We've seen Jesus our access, Jesus our acceptance now as we come to verses 25 and 26. The third note in this crescendo, the loudest and the highest note in this section is Jesus, our authority. Jesus, our authority. Remember when I was growing up in Florida, we'd go to the beach sometimes and see these people with the metal detectors walking along the coast, hoping to get something valuable or something cool. And you'd kind of hear this occasional beep. And then when they found something, it went to a, a solid tone. <laughs> yeah, to a, you know, from a beep, 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 to a beep. You knew they had something. The whole, this is a bad analogy because the whole Bible is one loud beep. But, <laughs> but here in this section, in terms of Jesus's revelation of himself as God, this is off the charts here. So all the woman's categories and defenses have been obliterated. Her whole life and her whole idea of how to get to God has been turned upside down. Wait, you're saying that you come to me? God comes to me? And you can feel now she's almost ready to fully believe. She's like that person who's about to bungee jump. And everything in them is saying, don't do this, you're crazy. Uh, and, yet, and, and yet she's almost there to take the leap. And she needs to know, she wants to know, is this too good to be true? What you've just said, is this too good to be true? I need someone who speaks with authority to tell me if this is true or not. So verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, you can kind of tell she's leaning into Jesus here. When he comes, wink, wink, he will tell us all things. And let's just slow down for a minute. Because what Jesus is about to say to her is one of the clearest, most striking revelations of his person as God in the entire New Testament. Just imagine this. Her eyes meet the eyes of Jesus. This man who had asked her for water. This man who had exposed the desperation in her soul, this man who had claimed to be greater than Jacob, greater than Mount Gerizim, greater than a temple. Jesus now claims for himself the divine name of God. She says, I know Messiah is coming. 
he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And now shine a spotlight on Jesus. Verse 26. I'm not going to read the ESV because the original is much better here. He says literally in verse 26, I am who speaks to you. I am who speaks to you. What did he just say? The I am who spoke to Moses at a burning bush now speaks to this woman at a well. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And because he is the word of God, this might sound obvious, but hear me. Because he is the word of God, he speaks the word of God. How can I know that Jesus is the only way to access God? Because Jesus said so. And Jesus speaks with authority. How can I know that in Christ, as sinful and as broken and as messed up and as desperate or as normal or as inadequate as I feel, that I'm acceptable to Almighty God? How, how can I be sure I'm acceptable? Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to earn something? Don't I have to prove something first? No. How do I know that I'm acceptable before God in Christ? Because Jesus said so. And Jesus speaks with authority. How can I really know that Jesus is my authority? Because Jesus is God. He is the I am. And Jesus speaks with authority. He's built this whole conversation up to a crescendo to point to him. His absolute, total, utter supremacy and sufficiency is magnified here in contrast to our and our systems and our works and our flesh. All of that is absolutely insufficient. You can come to God as you are and where you are and who you are in Christ. In thee and under thee, authority of Christ. Not on your own authority, not because you had a really good week of quiet times in the morning, not because of what church you go to, but because of Christ. You're given access. You're made acceptable in Christ. And this isn't just me talking. Jesus said this. And he is your authority. All you need to get to God, you have been given in Christ. You don't need anything else. He is right in front of us. And he's enough. I've said this before, I'll say it again. This is why the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder. It's a cross. We don't work our way up to him. We don't worship our way up to him. The cross reminds us of this. Samaria reminds us of this. Samaria is a parable of the cross. Jesus comes to us. I'll close with this summary from one commentator of the first part of John 4 and of Jesus' encounter with the woman of Samaria. 
Jesus made himself known to her. First, she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet. And she adored the Christ. That's why he came to her. And that's why he comes to you. He comes to you so you can come to him. He seeks you so that you can seek him. He loves you so that you can love him. In Christ, God gets to you so you can get to him. And you can always get to God because he's always got you. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for the gift of your word, the gift of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray today for every heart present here that by your Holy Spirit we would know that wonderful, pursuing, wooing, forgiving, knowing love of Christ that gives us access, makes us acceptable, speaks his authority over us. Help us to hear it, receive it, and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.